0: Galatians chapter 1, first one, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins, so that He might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ." Why was Paul amazed? Why was he so amazed that the churches, or at least some in the churches of Galatia, were backsliding? You know, succumbing to a little desertion. I mean, we almost expect that, don't we? Among some people, uh, maybe early on, that these Gentiles, I mean, who had not been raised with the Jewish background that Paul had, the history that he knew, This was fresh and new to them. Are we surprised that their doctrine would be confused? Are we amazed or shocked that perhaps there might be some teaching that would come in and and they would be confused by it and slide away from the truth of the grace of Jesus, that that these Galatians would be easily waylaid or confused? I mean, isn't it possible that we could be? Haven't you in your life at some point been a little confused over the Scriptures or, or perhaps even drawn completely away? And yet Paul says, I'm amazed that you're deserting this. You know, it may be a root problem in the Western church today, and that is too much slack. Too much gray area. Too much expectation that, yeah, we're not going to always really be there. We're not going to be sharp with our faith. We're going to slide a little bit. That's cool. That happens. Now, I don't know about you, but that's, that's a religion that I was raised on the expectation of sliding back and being okay with that. And I think maybe it's time for the church not to be okay with the gray areas. Maybe it's time for the church to recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about shrinking back to destruction. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is not mixed with all kinds of confusing messages, that it is black and white. It is straightforward. When accepted, it's salvation. When rejected, it's damnation. And you either receive it or you reject it. And there's only one Gospel. And it's very plain. And it's very clear. So when Paul says, I'm amazed you're deserting this, of course he was amazed. Because there was nothing like the Gospel ever brought forward on the planet before. Nothing more wonderful. Nothing more life-altering. And if we accept... The good news that Christ died for us in our ungodly state, forgave us, redeemed us, restored us, why would we slide back? Paul's right. It should be amazing that we don't just charge forward with the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. After all, didn't Jesus say, Luke 9, 62, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Why was Paul amazed? Well, Paul was amazed because Paul knew this personally. Paul experienced the radical life change of the gospel of God's grace himself. And after having experienced it, there was no going back. There was no sliding. There was no taking it easy or wallowing in the gray area. And as we'll see, and perhaps you didn't realize this, I confess to you, I didn't completely realize this until really pouring over Galatians. That Paul, from the moment he met Jesus, the course was laid in. You know, the map was googled. He was on his way. The die was cast. That was it. And that's what happens when a person truly meets Jesus. I'm not talking about comes across Jesus in religion. I'm talking about when we really meet Jesus through divine revelation, there's no turning back. Why would you? How could you? And I think that's part of the reason why Paul is so personally shocked to learn that there are some Galatians who are caving into law and legalism and religion. Note this. Look at verse 6 again. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you, by the grace of Christ, for a different gospel. Do you see the problem? They're deserting him for a different doctrine or dogma or religion. They're deserting Jesus. They're trading out the person for a paradigm. They're leaving the personal for ritual, they're, they're setting aside the Lord Jesus for legalistic religion. I am amazed you're deserting Him. You, you gotta get this. This is so important throughout all of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, and especially in the letters of Paul. He is not defining religion. I think if Paul knew that there was such a thing in the world as Pauline theology, he would throw up. I think it would make him sick to hear that people debate the doctrines of Paul. Because for Paul, there was only one doctrine, one teaching, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The grace of God, blood-bought by Jesus. That's it. That's the deal. And everything he taught and everything he explained in all the letters to the churches were about that. The Lord Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is never about Religion. And the gospel is nothing if not personal. It's got to be personal. And it was always personal for Paul. And so, again, if he thought theologians were debating, you know, this precept or this concept or this idea of Paul, I think he'd say, no, no, no. No, that's not what it's about. It is about Jesus, man, and it has always been about Jesus. But the agitators, as we've called them, moved into Galatia, and are attempting to draw these Gentiles away from pure relationship and back into rules and regulations and rituals. you remember the agitators? The Terasantes. There in verse 7, he says, those who are disturbing you, teresantes is what he calls them. And Paul is fired up as he fires off this letter. Now we introduced this, and I'm not going to go back over some of the introduction that we did a week ago Sunday, but we talked about that there were these who were not Judaizers because Judaism itself isn't the problem. Judaism is that which Christ came from. I mean, thankfully, because of the Jewish people, we have the Hebrew Scriptures and the rich history and the temple and the promises and the Christ. But these guys are agitators. They're trying to sink people into religion. It's interesting, Paul, I mean, he blasts off. And I think I shared that before, but Lightfoot in his excellent, uh, commentary said this is the sole instance where St. Paul omits to express his thanksgiving in addressing any church. You realize that? I mean, he hits the ground running so fast, he forgets to be thankful for the Galatian churches. Doesn't even mention that. To contrast that, Romans chapter 1, verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. When he writes to the church at Ephesus, he says, Ephesians 1.15, For this reason too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, we do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in our prayers. See, in every letter Paul says that. Everyone, Oh, we're so thankful for you. We never cease giving thanks for you. But when you get to Galatians, when you read this letter, there's no thanks. Paul does not have time for the pleasantries. No, instead, he lays out the gospel quickly, and then he calls out an eternal curse. An eternal curse. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed, anathema, damned. This is an eternal curse. This isn't, you know, woe unto him. This is much worse. If someone tries to drag you away from the simple, pure truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, let them be damned. That's what Paul is saying. Well, why would he say it? Why an eternal curse? Because there is no other gospel. There is no other way to be saved. You either accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and receive salvation, or damnation is the alternative. Black and white. Very clear. Paul doesn't mess around with this when it comes to the Gospel, when it comes to the truth of a revelation of Jesus. Which is why I prayed before we started, Lord, reveal Yourself to us. We need Jesus revealed. We don't need more doctrine. We don't need more rules, more laws, more legalism. We need to know Jesus and to be aware of Jesus and to talk to Jesus even as we talk to each other. To be in real relationship with Him. There are lots of ideas out there that sound like good news. You know, people come up all the time with ideas. Hey, here's good news. That's good news. i got some good news for you. All kinds of imitations and counterfeits that look good. But there is only one piece of good news that can save eternally. And that is the Gospel. You know this for thousands of years, 2,000 specifically since Jesus, but even prior to that, the message of good news has been on the lips of the prophets and the evangelists and those who come into relationship with God, sharing with others how marvelous it is to know God, to walk with Jesus, to be in a a relationship with Him, to never be alone. And yet, across these thousands of years of, Civilization of Earth's history, people still don't get it. They still either think it's about religion or they sink into religion. Let me share this with you. This was a, an article I actually read two or three weeks ago and I set it aside. I thought that might be worth reading at some point and it is. This is from The Guardian UK. It's called Spiritual Sedona, the Arizona town bursting with positive vibes. Just anyone want some vacation plans for the summer? Here you go. Written by Tara Isabella Burton, a Brit. She says, locals call Sedona, Arizona a cathedral without walls. Three million tourists a year come to this town of barely 10,000, nestled among towering, rusty sandstone rock formations in the northern Verde Valley. Many of these visitors are pilgrims, particularly at this time of year, headed to Arizona in search of spiritual renewal. Sedona has no major churches. Perhaps we should plant one there. I'm thinking. Sedona has no major churches, no relics, no established holy sites. But what it does have, get this, are vortexes. Vortexes. A series of unmarked points around Sedona's various cliffs that locals and visitors alike imbue with New Age significance. I thought the New Age went out in the 80s. (laughs) They say where that significance comes from, like the actual number of vortexes in Sedona, varies from guide to guide and is subject to debate. Locals cite legends about the area's sanctity to local Native American tribes. However, Sedona didn't become America's New Age capital until the 1980s when a U.S. psychic named Paige Bryant identified the vortexes after a vision. These vortexes were places where spiritual energy was at its highest point where you could tap into the frequencies of the universe. <laughs> and get what, gas? I don't know. Where you could, by closing your eyes, start to change your life. She goes on. Spiritual seekers across the country listened. In 1987, Sedona was host to one of the largest branches of the Harmonic Convergence, a New Age synchronized meditation where 5,000 pilgrims came to get in touch with the universe at the Bell Rock Butte, believed by many to be a vortex. But Sedona's natural beauty rearing rust-stained rock faces, orange dust pathways around safe-scented mesas and searing blue skies, which makes me want to praise the Lord, induces, if not spirituality, at least then a certain awe. She writes, My favorite moments are not under the guided meditations or the past life readings, but when I can hike, wander, or explore on my own. Walking through the yucca strands and mesquite branches, in the rusting gold shadow of the vortex site known as Cathedral Rock, listening to the sound of another traveler's panpipes on top of Airport Mesa. This is, what, 2017? Panpipes? And then she says, Sneaking away from a torque, to close my eyes and feel the scorching sun on my skin, hearing the creek murmur in the distance, all these provoke a sensation as close to mindfulness as any I'd experienced. I don't know if I'm in a cathedral, but there are worse ways to spend a Sunday morning. Sedona. Another Gospel. Good news, there's a place you can go and get in touch with the universe. What does that even mean? In touch with what? The planet Pluto? I don't get this. By the way, so she's a British writer. I heard this just on Sunday. And it's remarkable to me. In America today, 70% of people identify as Christian. Still a large percentage. Now, we're not talking about whether or not people are born again or evangelical or Catholic or, or what they are. But 70% still identify, will say, oh yeah, I, I'm Christian. I'm Christian. You know what the percentage of people who identify as Christian is in Great Britain? Brace yourselves. 1%. 1%. This is from a missionary who works in London. of Brits identify as Christian. The land of Spurgeon, you know, some of the great teachers of the the, the previous couple of centuries. And that shocked me. But it made sense then to hear a a writer talking about another gospel in, in such a fashion so many ideas out there, ways that you can find good news, spiritual enlightenment, a new sense of self-mindfulness, all of these things in the world, they will not satisfy. Oh, it might be nice for a moment to sit on a hot January day in Sedona and listen to the creek and feel the warmth of the sun on your face. I I don't deny that that wouldn't be a pleasurable experience, especially on a cold day in January here. Here. But to say that there's something more going on. To find, to look for a different gospel. And our world is chasing that down. Looking for it. Now you might ask, how can we be certain, not only of the gospel, but that we're not being drawn off? Now Sedona is one thing, but, but how do we know we're really on the right path? of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And not like the Galatians, beginning to sway to the left or to the right. Beginning to rabbit trail a little bit away from just simple, pure faith in Jesus Christ. Well, let me give you a couple of ways to be alert and to know that you're not being drawn off. First John chapter 4, verse 1, John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, don't immediately assume the spirits he's talking about are spirits from a different plane. The spirits he's talking about may very well be another person who claims to be a Christian. You know, you're a spirit, I'm a spirit, we all have a spirit in us. So test what you hear. When you hear preaching from this pulpit, test it. To be sure That This is from God because, he writes, many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know, here we go, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that claims to be a vortex. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The confession of Jesus. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit, he writes, of the Antichrist. Remember that Antichrist doesn't mean against Christ. Antichrist means another Christ. You could compare that with what Paul wrote. Another gospel, a different gospel. Antichrist is a different Christ. As opposed to the only Christ through whom we can be saved. And he says, You've heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Is Jesus recognized for who He is? Does the teaching recognize Jesus? Does the Gospel presented honor and glorify Jesus? If so, you're on the right track. If so, you're probably not being drawn off. And again, from verse 6 of Galatians chapter 1, don't desert Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Don't desert a relationship with Jesus for a religion, whatever that religion looks like, even if it looks Christian. If it's not relationship with Jesus, it's getting off track. The other thing I would just ask is, does the teaching adhere to God's Word? You can test it. You have the testing device right here in your hands. To test by the Word of God everything proclaimed, everything spoken. Test it all. Not not the charisma of the prophet or the mouth of a pastor or the feels of the heart. These are not good ways of testing if something is true. Because someone can come along and sound Exciting and charismatic and easily draw you off and that's what was happening in Galatia I would imagine these disruptors these agitators probably were well spoken men probably had some degree of intellect and were able to explain why it was so important that you non-circumcised Galatians go be circumcised that you keep Sabbath and that you eat the way we eat and keep the things that we keep man test everything by His Word. What does Jesus say about the Sabbath? Sabbath was not made... Man was not made for Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. He said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I gave you Sabbath so you'd chill out, not so you get all uptight. Did Jesus ever talk about circumcision? Did He ever tell us how important that was and be sure we all are? If you're going to follow Me... You know, if any man come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and be circumcised. That's not what He said. He said, follow Me. Because again, for Jesus, it was all about come and know Me. Come and be with Me. Come and walk with Me. That's what this whole thing has been pointing to for all of history. And Isaiah says in Isaiah 8.20, if they do not speak according to this Word, it's because they have no dawn. Jude writes in Jude chapter 1 actually it's just one chapter he says beloved verse 3 while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once handed down for all the saints one faith once handed down not constantly changing he said for certain persons have crept in unnoticed I would equate these with the disruptors Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, we are right back to Jesus and one faith. One faith in one Jesus declared by one word. No wonder Paul said, anything else is damnation. Anything else is anathema." Brothers and sisters, you stick to Jesus, and you'll be all right. Verse 10. Paul then says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. Lowest form of slave in the Greek language. If I were trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Jesus. This verse, Galatians 1.10, sits handwritten in a little frame on the end table in my office. I read it every day. I'm reminded of it every single day. To know Jesus and to see that my highest bidding is that of being a slave. Just to be a slave of His. Highest bidding, lowly slave. That's the calling. By the way, to be a lowly slave of Christ is the greatest of all possible honors on earth. There is no higher honor than to be on your knees before the Lord Jesus. And those who know Him, who love Him, who have had revelation of Him, they understand this. We become fully aware. In fact, we were just talking about this, Susie and I, about our position before Him. When we start to taste of His grace, understand That immense love that He has for us. Oh, nothing is more humbling. Nothing brings me into a lowlier position of just let me be your slave. I'm the prodigal returning home saying, Father, just let me be a servant in the house. That's all I want. I don't want anything else. I don't need an inheritance. I don't need to be called your son anymore. I know I've blown it. Just let me be your slave. And what's wonderful about that is He comes back at us and offers so much more all of the servants understood this. Now Paul writes this that I am, you know, just a slave. I, I would not be a slave of Christ. James, brother of Jesus, he writes in his letter James chapter 1 verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave. You want to define me? That's what I am. I'm a slave. Peter in 2nd Peter chapter 1 verse 1 calls himself a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I, I love the order there. Slave first, apostle second. And the only reason he's apostle is because he has a message as a bond servant of Jesus to tell you about Jesus. So even as an apostle, he's not this higher up. John, who we assume to be Jesus' best friend on the earth, Revelation chapter one verse one said, "The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bond servants, his due loss, his slaves." The things which must soon take place, he sent and communicated by his angel to his slave, John. They understood this. Now, I specifically pulled out some verses there showing the attitude of James and of Peter and of John, all three calling themselves slaves of Christ. I do that on purpose because they are key players in Paul's account, as you're going to see in just a few moments here. But what is wonderful to me, what's marvelously ironic, is while I come into a relationship with Jesus and I am thrilled to be just a slave of His, I come to Him seeking servitude and God offers sonship. I come to Him seeking just to follow Jesus and Jesus calls me His friend. And I don't deserve that. And you know what there is a word for that? grace it is as you may know the key word of this entire letter grace and it is what paul is fighting for here and it is why paul is so vehemently going head to head with these agitators don't you dare strip away one iota of grace because that is from god So while we desire simply to be his slaves, in fact, what what do we want to hear more than anything else? Well done, good and faithful slave. I want to hear him say that. And yet I know by the grace of God, He has made me so much more. Now, at this point in the letter, having already referred to the grace of Christ and getting into this, Paul begins to express that grace by his own experience. And for those of you who like an outline, let me just give you a a six-point suggestion for the letter to the church at Galatia, or the churches. Uh, Six points that that will kind of take us through the whole letter. Uh, Number one, we begin with Paul's foray into the gospel of grace. His foray. And I, I say foray because it's like an attack. I mean, like I said, he comes out swinging. He comes out with both barrels firing away. He takes a foray into grace. And that's the first ten verses of chapter 1. Second part of the outline. Paul then launches into his firsthand experience of grace. And that's what he's about to describe for us. His own experience, personally. And that's chapter 1, verse 11, through chapter 2, about verse 14. And then from chapter 2, verse 15, through chapter 4, verse 31, Paul goes into the faith of grace. He teaches about grace. He gives doctrine of grace, really describes and defines it, and helps us to understand it. And so again, his foray into grace, first ten verses, his first hand experience of grace, chapters one and two, the faith of grace, chapter two through chapter four, and then in chapter five, part four, the freedom of grace. So what does it mean once you understand grace and receive grace? How do you walk in it? What does that look like? And it looks like freedom. And that's the first 15 verses of chapter 5. Then, in verse 16 through verse 25 of chapter 5, part 5 of the outline is the flesh versus the fruit of grace. The flesh versus the fruit. And then, at the end, number 6 will be final admonitions of grace. I'll give those to you one more time, and after this you're going to have to go back online and find this out. Paul's foray into the gospel of grace. Paul's firsthand experience of grace. The faith of grace, the freedom of grace, the flesh versus the fruit of grace, and then final admonitions of grace. So we're going to continue tonight just with Paul's firsthand experience, picking up now in verse 11. Paul said, and this is important, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the wording is so important. I received it that second time there in verse 12. You see it italicized. So just kind of pull that out for a second. Read it without that little phrase. That phrase is to help us understand it or read it easier. But it should read like this. I neither received it from man, that is the Gospel. Nor was taught it, but through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see how that's different? That what Paul's saying is, this wasn't about a doctrinal dissertation. This was about getting to know Jesus. This was about a revelation of Him. Paul could very easily say, the reason why I'm able to teach all that I'm able to teach and write all the things that I'm able to write is because I know Jesus. I know Him. I spent time with Him. I learned from Him. And so what I relate to you is just Jesus. And it's what's important to Him and what matters to Him. A revelation of Jesus Christ. I I said this a couple of weeks ago. Every one of us has heard the Gospel from someone. Paul heard the Gospel from Jesus. Every one of us got the gospel through the agency of another human being. Paul got it from Jesus. Direct. And it's important, and he makes this point not only here, he made the point to the church at Corinth. He will make the point again to other churches. He wants everybody to be clear. This is not something that he has taken and kind of regurgitated from Jerusalem. This is from Jesus himself. Verse 13, he said, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. And I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen. Being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul's credentials were legendary. To my mind, Paul should have been the apostle to the Jews because he knew Judaism so well. Because he was a Jew through and through. He had it down. And in terms of both his Hebrew background and his hateful brutality to the church, Paul was well known. If you think back to the book of Acts, chapter 8 verse 1, we're told that Saul, first time we meet him, he was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And in fact, in Acts chapter 8 verse 3, it tells us Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them into prison. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. To what end? Imprisonment and or death. That was Paul's mission. His ministry, if you will. And he believed in it. But then he met Jesus on that Damascus road, didn't he? What happened on that road? Well, he paused on a hot afternoon, opened up his Bible and had a little Bible study and had an aha moment. No, he met Jesus. Am I being clear about this whole Jesus relationship thing? He met Jesus. And it spun him around 180 degrees. Verse 15 he says, But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through His grace was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Now now stop there for a moment. Paul says some powerful things here. Like Jeremiah, Paul says he was set apart from his mother's womb. Jeremiah is the only other prophet who explicitly says the same thing. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. The prophet said, uh, quoting God, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Wow. Credentials. Paul says, God said the same thing to me. Paul says, Jesus revealed to me that I was known for this ministry to the Gentiles from my mother's womb. Now, that can be very impressive, but before you get all impressed, think about it. What does it mean for Paul to have been set apart from his mother's womb? I like the way Martin Luther put it. Did God call me on account of my holy life? Or on account of my Pharisaical religion? Or on account of my prayers, my fastings, my works? Never. Never. Well then, it is certain God did not call me on account of my blasphemies, persecutions, and oppressions. What prompted God to call me His grace alone? And the fact that Paul, like Jeremiah, was called from his mother's womb tells us very clearly it had nothing to do with Paul. Nothing to do with what Paul could do for the Gospel. With Paul's credentials, Paul's ability to... Paul's giftedness. Before Paul had done anything, God said, this is the one I'm going to have carry the Gospel to the Gentiles. It's grace. Paul is called by grace. Even as you, even as I am called by grace. And he says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and I returned once more to Damascus. I believe... There in Arabia was when Paul received further instruction from Jesus, hung out with Jesus. We don't know how long he was there, uh, months into a year, a couple of years, we don't know exactly, but we know that after his calling, that's where he went. And I believe there it was one-on-one Jesus time. He refers to this only one time, if I'm correct in my assessment, one time and then only in the third person, and we talked about that in Second Corinthians chapter twelve. I believe it was from Arabia, it was in that experience with Jesus that Paul was caught up. He says, I know a man who was caught up to the third heaven. Remember we talked about this a few weeks back. I, I know someone who had this divine revelation, but I can't talk about that. I'm not gonna talk about that. But I know that revelation came directly from the Lord. Paul, by the way, speaking of Revelation, Paul was not out looking for Revelation when it came. Do you realize that? On the road to Damascus, he was looking for blood. He was looking for justice. He was looking to destroy the church. He was not looking for a new thing. In fact, he was absolutely opposed to the new thing. And that's important because... Sadly, oftentimes when people go looking for a new revelation, they'll find it. Joseph Smith did. Muhammad did. Uh, What's his name? Charles Taz Russell, founder of Jehovah's Witness. These who go looking for something other, a different gospel, who are out looking for some kind of divine revelation, perhaps by traveling to Sedona, they're going to find something. And at first it may sound like good news. It might feel good. It might tickle the ears. It might do something electric to the body. And it's a lie. And Paul was not out looking for it when Jesus found him and spun him around. In verse 18, he says, then three years later, and he's kind of laying out an outline here for you, and you can go back and just kind of track through the outline, because he's very explicit about what happened point to point from his meeting on the Damascus road forward. But he says, three years later, that is, he had returned to Damascus, he stayed in Damascus, and then after three years, he went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that is Peter, and stayed with him for 15 days. But, he says, I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then he confirms this. He says, now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. I'm telling you the truth here. This, this is the way it went down. Paul says, I was in Jerusalem basically just long enough to meet Peter. Stayed with him a few days. Met James. But not long enough to be trained by either one of them. And I would submit to you that even in that short time, both Peter and James would have been equally impressed by Paul's sudden depth of knowledge and understanding of the grace of God. In fact, years later, Peter wrote, and it's a favorite passage of mine, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he writes, "...regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do also to the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. I think Peter's hinting that some of Paul's writings were confusing to him. I mean, I could be wrong. But Peter, just think of the beauty of how God did this. Peter, the big fisherman, the foot-and-mouth fisherman, From Galilee becomes the apostle to the Jews. Paul, the Hebrew among Hebrews, becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. Why did God do it that way? Listen. Because in so doing, the grace of God could be seen in both men. If Paul went to the Jews, anybody could say, oh, well of course, of course Jews are following the teachings of Paul. He is a Jew. They understand Paul. He understands them. Of course, that's how it works. But sending a Jewish elite to the Gentiles who would think very little of him as a Jew, well, now God gets the glory. Sending a big dumb fisherman to the Jewish people in Jerusalem? Man, what he's teaching? Remember what the Pharisees said of Peter and John. These are unschooled ordinary men. (laughs) idiotus. they know what they know. One way, they've been with Jesus. They know Jesus. God does this. God calls us, by His grace, into positions that we don't have the capacity to handle. He puts us in relationships that we don't know what to do with He allows us to walk in situations that are far beyond us. And I can tell you, absolutely, this church is far beyond me. And it was when there were 20 of us. I didn't know what I was doing. I still don't. Don't tell the shepherds. So often, you don't have a clue what you're doing. But you know, God's doing something. So you just follow Him. You just trust Him. And He gets glorified and grace works out among us. So why? Think about this. He goes up to Jerusalem. He stays with with Peter. He sees James and that's it. First time in Jerusalem. That's it. Nobody else. Why? Why didn't they have a big potluck and, and invite Paul and introduce him? This is three years since his conversion. You would think after three years he, he would have, you know, substantiated that he truly is a follower of Jesus, and, and it would all be cool. Three years later, in Acts chapter 9 verse 26 says, when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Not believing that he was a disciple. Wow. Put some skin and bones on that. How hard would that be? You're Paul. You, you go to Jerusalem. You have been revealed Jesus. Jesus Himself has come to you. He's trained you. You're out preaching in Damascus. It's been going well until they have to lower you over the wall in a barrel, you know, in a basket and get you out of there. So you go up to Jerusalem. Oh, this will be good. Sweet fellowship. Finally I can hang with the leaders and and Peter who I know of and James and the guys. And this is going to be good. And they're all afraid of you. you got to wonder at that point if you're not thinking, God... Did you make a mistake with me? Did you really call me from my mother's womb? Should should I be the... Because even the brethren are scared of me. How is this okay? Paul, Christian enemy number one, a known terrorist to the church, suddenly saved? (laughs) Would you trust him? But it does make me wonder why God would choose him. And again, the answer comes back to grace. Why does God choose anybody. Grace. It's His grace. Why am I able to sit here and teach His Word? (laughs) It is His grace. Why are we able to walk in the lives that He's given us? It's grace. It's grace alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But listen. Then He says, and He raised us up with with Him. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means on into eternity. We're still going to be talking about grace. We're still going to be experiencing grace. We're going to look at one another and say, I thought I learned everything there was to learn about grace on that Wednesday night in January. I was totally wrong! I mean, grace upon grace revealed to us and in us and through us. It's marvelous. Verse 21. So Paul then continuing, he says, Well, then I went into the regions of Syria and note this Cilicia. And you might mark this Cilicia is where Tarsus was. So this is where Paul goes back to Tarsus. What he doesn't mention in the interim here is that a hit was put on his life there in Jerusalem too. So they rushed him out of there, down to Caesarea, and he made his way on back to Tarsus. Verse 22. I love this. I was unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith. Which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. These are the Tarsus years, and Paul sums it up for us in just a couple of verses, but this is so important. In fact, it changed my thinking a little bit. The Tarsus years. The Tarsus years are what occur between Acts chapter 9 verse 30 and Acts chapter 11 verse 25. In that section, after Paul's amazing conversion in Acts chapter 9, and then his experience in Damascus, and then he goes up to Jerusalem, and then he makes his way back to Tarsus, and then seven years, roughly, six or seven years go by. Paul is all the while in Cilicia and Syria. But mostly they're back in the hometown of Tarsus. Six or seven years. And we know nothing about those years except what he shares right here. The unknown years of Paul's ministry not written about in the book of Acts and yet, get this, those unknown years to us brought glory to God. While those years were going by and Paul was in Tarsus, all the churches in Judea are hearing about this preacher in Syria and Cilicia who once persecuted the church but now is preaching the gospel. And they are all glorifying God because of him. They didn't know what he looked like. They weren't even sure really who he was. I mean, hey, he got saved on the way to Damascus, made his way to Jerusalem, and then he was out of there. That was it. So none of the churches saw him. They had no visual uh, uh, remembrance of him. And so all this time goes by. And by the way, at the end of this period of time, Acts 11.25 tells us, Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, get this. When we studied Acts, I made an assumption that I want to retract. If I may, I know it's already in the teaching on the website. It is recorded now for history. But i got to retract this. I made a human assumption that in these hidden years Paul slipped back into Tarsus and was just kind of bumping around his hometown bummed out. Depressed. I mean, hey, they didn't accept him in Jerusalem. He had to slip out of Damascus in a basket. Maybe it was all a mistake after all, so he just kind of goes home and maybe he went back to tent making until then Barnabas, son of encouragement, goes and gets him and says, no, Paul, i got to encourage you. We need you over here. I was completely wrong based on my reading here of Galatians. Because what apparently was taking place is that Paul was powerful in ministry in Tarsus. Barnabas knew that and went to get him because he needed Paul. It wasn't that Paul needed Barnabas. Barnabas needed Paul. So he goes to get him, bring him to Antioch, and what happens? A year of fantastic ministry takes place in Antioch. And by the way, Antioch now becomes Paul's home base. That becomes the place where they're first called Christians and the church grows and there's a little group of prophet teachers that meet there, including Barnabas and and Paul. And things really start to take off and explode there. But my friends, based on what he says here, There was powerful preaching going on during that entire time up in Tarsus. You might even say Paul was laying the groundwork for what would take place when he moved from Antioch around the Horn through uh, Syria and Cilicia and then on into Galatia. And it started for Paul in Tarsus. I want to see the videotapes on Tarsus when we get to heaven. I think there are going to be some things there we've never heard that are awesome. So Antioch then becomes home base for Paul. Chapter 2, verse 1, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along also. It was because of, note this, because of, second time he said this, because of a revelation that I went up. And I submitted to them the gospel which I would preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Paul is concerned, not for the validity of his gospel that he had received from Jesus, but he was concerned as he goes up to Jerusalem, that his ministry might be discredited by those of reputation, in Jerusalem. And he didn't want all that to be vain, all that work to be undermined when he went up there. He knew it to be true. Let me tell you, I may have shared this before, but when we first started our first Bible study in the Gilmore's living room and, and first became the Bridge Christian Fellowship, and flying under the radar, there were some people who said, oh, you're that church split. And it really upset me. Because we were not. It was not a church split. It was not a group of disgruntled people who broke off from a prior church to start the bridge. That wasn't it at all. It was a calling, a revelation of Jesus that started this church. But what really upset me, it wasn't honestly my reputation. You know what upset me about it? That this beautiful, pure, simple baby of a church that had just been birthed might be discredited that people in the community might look and go, oh, the Bridge Christian Fellowship, just another division. And that wasn't the thing. So I get how Paul is feeling here going up to Jerusalem and saying, look, my ministry is legit here. And it's not about me, but it is about Jesus because He's the one who revealed it to me and He's the power working through me and He's the relationship I've got. And by the way, He's the one who gave me revelation to come up here and talk to you guys in Jerusalem anyway. So I believe that's what is on the heart of Paul as he he goes up. But what exactly does it mean that it was because of a revelation, Paul says, that I went up? It was very simple. Jesus said, go. And if we didn't have this letter to the churches in Galatia, we wouldn't know this. Because the other reference to it, in Acts chapter 15, and, and yes, I am of the camp that believes what Paul is talking about here in chapter 2 is Acts 15. There are others who say it was a different trip up to Jerusalem and there's some debate about that. And It all goes to when was the letter written to the churches in Galatia in the, ni- in the, in the 50s or in the mid-50s. And I think it was the mid-50s and I believe he's talking about the Jerusalem conference in Acts chapter 15. The parallels are very strong. And I can go into that. I'm, I'm not going to. don't want to argue it. And if you have a different opinion, you can be wrong. That's fine. But Acts chapter 15, verse 2. Luke says, the brethren, talking about they in Antioch. The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. What issue? Circumcision. It's the same issue that's dealt with at the Jerusalem Council that Paul is dealing with right here at the outset of Galatians. So in Acts 15, what we get is that they determined and they sent Paul up to Jerusalem. But Paul here tells us, no. It was because of a revelation that I went up. So how do we square the two? Perhaps the Antioch prophets and teachers group which we read about in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, perhaps they were gathered again in prayer and fasting, as they so often did. And in prayer and fasting, in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, they're doing that. They're praying, they're fasting before the Lord, and the Lord says, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas. Perhaps they're doing it again. And the Lord says, Barnabas, I know you're going up to Jerusalem to bring some financial revenue to, to the Jerusalem church. Paul, I want you to go. Maybe it happened there. The revelation came that way. Or that Paul simply heard from Jesus himself, Paul, I want you to go. But Paul makes it clear, and it's important to get, that this visit was ordained by God. It wasn't just man's idea that Paul go up and bring the truth about the Gospel versus the circumcisers. Okay, It was by revelation. And I woke this morning and the first question on my mind, kid you not, when my eyes opened up and my head popped off the pillow, my first thought was, how much of my life do I live by revelation? How much do I live by revelation? Not the book of revelation. I mean, do I live by revelation? Do I ask the Lord? Do I listen to the Lord? Am I in prayer with the Lord enough and listening that my choices, my decisions, my directions are revelational as opposed to intentional? Do I live by revelation rather than guesstimation? Well, I think this might be a good idea for our life, honey. Maybe we should do this. Well, let's make a pros and cons list. You know you're not going to find in Scripture anywhere... The admonition to make a list of pros and cons and go with the one that comes out best? That's not there. What you will find in Scripture is those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and they they will never faint. That's that's revelational living. Paul knew he was supposed to go up to Jerusalem because he lived by revelation. Revelation. And notice this, that when he went by this revelation, he he and Barney took along Titus. Why would they do that? What's that all about? Well, Titus was Paul's Greek protege, having never been circumcised. Throughout 2 Corinthians, we read this, he talks about Titus. Paul loved Titus. Titus was uh, an amazing young man. Titus would ultimately be a pastor. In fact, the the letter to Titus we have, because of Titus and Paul's relationship, Titus chapter 1 verse 4, he writes to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So Paul had a great love for Titus, and so Paul, Barnabas, and Titus go up to Jerusalem, verse 3. But, not even Titus who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. Now, I can only tell you this, we can't really see it, but this is a messy sentence in Greek. Verses 3 and 4 is messy. It's not actually the best grammar, which is unusual for Paul. Paul, Paul, normally his letters are pretty grammatically accurate and, and tight and well-spoken and, and intelligent. But these two verses, it's like he's speaking from his heart. It's like it's emotional. And he starts to talk about Titus and then, and then he remembers the, those guys who came in, those, those agitators causing problems. And so he kind of breaks the sentence midway in between as he's talking about this. To Paul's credit and to Titus's credit, they did not cave in when these agitators came and, and tried to shame Titus into being circumcised. And that's what Paul describes here. These guys came along and they put pressure on my brother Titus, a Gentile and a Greek, that he needed to start keeping these Jewish traditions. Well, Titus did not give in. And nor did I, Paul would go on to say, And so, he takes Titus with him. Why does he take Titus with him? Again, he takes Titus because he's pressing the humanity of the issue. I love this. It's actually brilliant. What he does is, instead of going up to Jerusalem to deal with this theoretically, he goes up to Jerusalem and deals with it personally. He brings Titus. If we're going to talk about Gentiles being circumcised, I'd like to introduce you to an uncircumcised Gentile. If we're going to deal with this theologically, we're going to deal with it personally. And that's important because too often in the church we will have meetings that are theologically based and end up hurting people because we don't take the people into consideration. I believe that's why Jesus said in Matthew eighteen fifteen, you got issues with a brother, you go to your brother. It's a whole lot more difficult to be angry with a brother or sister face-to-face than it is behind closed doors. Or in a meeting somewhere else, you know, when I'm talking about them with someone else. Oh yeah, he did that. Oh yeah, what a jerk. And then you get face to face, and it's it's a little more difficult then, because you, now you see their humanity. Paul brings Titus and puts him right in the middle of the meeting. It's like, you've got to deal with this in the light, bros. Not going to talk about circumcising Gentiles and not have the Gentiles in on the conversation. Kind of like having a global peace conference about the Israeli-Palestinian issue and not inviting Israel. Same idea, truly. You want to be fair to Israel in discussions of peace? They need to be there. And so right here, Paul says, I'm taking Titus. Jesus says, go up, take Titus, go. And so he does, verse 5, he says, But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. It's a phrase he's saying, we didn't give them a second. We did not even pause in our step. We didn't even stop to discuss if maybe he should be circumcised. By the way, Paul does have Timothy circumcised. And that's a different discussion perhaps for a different time. But Paul was willing to do what needed to be done for the sake of the gospel. What he was not willing to do was to do something that would harm the gospel. And Titus being circumcised up in Galatia would harm the gospel would take away from the gospel of grace. And so they didn't do it. How would the church today be different if the early church embraced the agitators back then? Can you imagine that? What if the early church embraced Judaism and all of the requirements of the law and circumcision, gentlemen, and Shabbat every week, ladies, and on top of that, all of the kosher laws of the Jewish faith and all the feasts and all the festivals and all of these things now that are required in Judaism. What would it be like if Paul and Titus had even given an inch? If they had been willing to go along and just, ah, well, you know, I know it's about grace, but boy, these guys make a point. And Jewish faith is kind of cool. You know, keeping the festivals. I know Christians right and left who think it's a blast. Sadly, I know Christians right and left who think, we need to get into that. By the way, I think we're going to do a Passover Seder this year, but for the fun of it, and for the education of it, And for the joy of the fellowship of it, we're already talking about bringing someone out from Jews for Jesus and doing right here in the sanctuary, setting up tables and doing a Passover Seder meal, which could be really cool and very informative. But not because we have to. And it was because men like Paul stood strong on grace that, well, what does he say in chapter 5, verse 1? It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Translation. If you go back to law, you're casting out grace you're going to miss the whole thing. And if I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law, man, you've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. That's how you fall from grace. Interesting. It is not sin that causes a person to fall from grace. It's law. It's religion. A fall from grace is a diving headlong into ritual and legalistic religion. And if they had done it back then, where would we be today? Circumcision. Again, Shabbat, kosher food. Now, I say those things, and they, they may not sound bad, but I want to encourage you all, because I love Israel. I love Jewish faith. I am fascinated with all the learning that we went through. We studied Torah in this fellowship. We studied the prophets and the law and Moses. We went through it all. We will, Lord willing, again, once we finish the New Testament, we'll swing back around again. And it's important and it is is—it is the fabric of our faith. But my friends, don't let fascination with Jewish things cause you to deny grace. To slide backwards. Because when Christians do this, and I've seen it happen again and again, all of these Jewish things become shoulds and oughts and have tos. And suddenly grace gets lost. So we did not yield. Verse 6 he says, But from those who were of high reputation, <laughs> what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation, he says, contributed nothing to me. I had to read this a few times. I had to think it through a, a little bit here. Um, as to how how Paul was speaking, what he was thinking, what he was actually saying here, three times he uses the phrase those of reputation. And this could be read sarcastically or pejoratively. He could be saying, those guys of high reputation, they had nothing in me and they added nothing to me and we didn't yield to them. God shows no partiality. I don't think that is how he's speaking here. In fact, if you notice, he says this, uses this phrase of reputation three times. He uses it back there in verse two, uses it in verse six, and then again in the latter part of verse six. These guys of reputation. The word is dokeo in the Greek, and it's actually translated different ways, but here and in the context, it really means those who are esteemed. Those who do have a rep. Those who are well known. And I believe it was an honorary title specifically for what we might call the Jerusalem Triumvirate. Three men. James, the brother of Jesus, Peter, and John. But these are the men of reputation. What's their reputation? They had been with Jesus. It wasn't that they were cocky. It wasn't that they were overbearing leaders. It wasn't that they were proud. It wasn't that Peter was a pope. It wasn't that they were wearing hats and robes. You know... It was just, these These are the reputable guys. These are the names. And Paul says, God shows no partiality. Understand that. I love this about Paul. The only one who impressed Paul was Jesus. He was not impressed by Peter. He liked Peter. That's obvious. He probably appreciated John may have loved John, had conversation with James, was glad to meet these guys who had walked with Jesus, but guess what? Paul had walked with Jesus too. And I think once you walk with Jesus, celebrity of a human nature starts to pale by comparison. You know That's kind of a good test, I think, for us as followers of Jesus. Are we more impressed by celebrities or by the Lord? Are we more excited to be here and worship Him Or to go off and watch some show or see some interview or go to some concert, you know? The only celebrity that impressed Paul was Jesus himself. And the rest of us, regardless of title or position, man, we're all just the same. We're all slaves, right? Bond servants, all of us together. So then Paul continuing on, hang in with me just a little bit longer here. just want to get through chapter 4. Verse 7. On the contrary, seeing that I have been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, and again, don't let that irony be lost on you. Verse 8, he said, For he, Jesus, who effectively worked or effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles and recognizing the grace that had been given to me here's the triumvirate James and Cephas and John who were reputed to be pillars they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised and it's beautiful, it all worked out Paul stood on grace and it all worked out just fine But he says he got nothing new from them, right? I got nothing from James and Peter and John. Nothing new, no new information about grace. Everything I got about grace, I got from Jesus. And they really didn't add anything to it. But I guarantee you this (laughs) that James and Peter. And John got a whole lot of revelation about grace from Paul. I would imagine sitting there in that meeting, James and Peter and John, perhaps being reminded of what it was like to just walk with Jesus in the Galilee, to be out on the boat with him, to be there on the hillside with him, listening to him teach and remembering how there wasn't a lot of law. It was grace. Because that's who Jesus is. And praise God, grace won. One more verse. Verse 10. He says, They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Now there's a little irony here. They said to us, remember the poor. Well, who were the poor? Probably the church in Jerusalem. Definitely the churches in Judea... In the early days of the church, and we see this in the book of Acts, a number of famines hit Judea. And there were a number of times where those churches were struggling. Paul's third missionary journey was a complete relief effort to get funds from all the churches all the way out as far as Macedonia and take those funds back to Jerusalem to be dispersed among the churches because of the poverty, because of the famine that was was hitting there at the time. And so the poor, remember the poor... You can almost hear them saying, just, man, when you blast off and you're taking the Gospel to the Gentiles in the larger Gentile world, don't forget us poor Jews. (laughs) Don't forget the impoverished here. Remember the poor. Mark chapter 14, verse 7, Jesus said, you always have the poor with you. And He's right, we do. In fact, the most impoverished souls on the planet are those who are living without grace. Remember the poor. Those who you know don't know Jesus, have never had a revelation of Jesus Christ, don't understand grace, think that church is all about religion, remember the poor. Because grace, by that old acronym didn't think I was going to use it, but I have to, is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. Paul put it this way, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. So remember the poor, and share the gospel of grace. I invite you, if... If you so choose to just pray along with me in your heart and pray after me to the Lord. Jesus, reveal Yourself to me. Jesus, help me to understand the full measure of Your grace. Jesus, help me to be one who walks forgiven who lives redeemed and who loves as one restored. Fill me so overflowing with Your grace, Lord, that it gets on other people around me in the way I treat others, in the way I act toward others. Overflow, Lord, Your grace in me so I might walk in the freedom of Your Spirit and not in the bondage of my flesh. Teach me, Lord, what it means to walk by revelation. Pour out Your Spirit on me. Lord, without Your Spirit, I I know I can't grasp any of this. So I pray that I might be filled with Your Spirit, Revealed of Jesus. And Lord, one who walks in the freedom of Your grace, let the grace in me be felt and experienced and seen by people around me to the degree, Lord, that they want You, Amen. even as I am learning to want You. And Lord, strip away from me all vestiges of old religion, all tendencies of legalism that lead to guilt or shame. Free me by the forgiveness and restoration of the cross. I praise You for Your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.